June is Pride Month in the United States. It's a time to commemorate and celebrate the stories and experiences of those who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and beyond. Pride Month began with the first Pride Parade in New York City in June 1970. It was one year after the so-called Stonewall Riots, a series of gay liberation protests that were sparked in defiance of police raids and harassment on some of the few places where LGBTQ plus persons could come together and be themselves. In response to anti-gay laws of the time and continual arrests and abuse from the NYPD, the Pride Movement was born. Now, over 50 years later, gay pride is still as important a rallying cry as it ever has been. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may help shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. Today, we're celebrating Pride Month by listening back to two conversations with past guests on the show who identify as gay and who shared how reckoning with their sexual identities and feelings of being different in a heteronormative society influenced their trajectories as communicators and storytellers. We'll listen to excerpts from my interview with public speaking coach Eduardo Placer and multi-published best-selling author Wade Rouse. First, let's listen back to my 2022 conversation with Eduardo Placer. Eduardo is an award-winning keynote speaker, facilitator, and the CEO of Fearless Communicators, a company that empowers individuals and organizations to overcome their fear of public speaking and to become more impactful communicators. Having worked with clients like Google, American Express, and the United Nations, Eduardo joined us to discuss the power of storytelling. In this excerpt, Eduardo and I begin to joke about a pretend affliction that he lists in his bio. He calls it show and jokingly says that it makes him spontaneously break out into song wherever he travels in the world. As funny as that idea is, Eduardo tells us that its source has a lot more to do with being proud of who he is and his refusal to stop hiding anymore as an adult. Let's listen back to that excerpt with Eduardo now. You know, growing up as a child in Miami, Florida, uh, shotunitis was very difficult to live with because uh, I don't think it was something that was celebrated or understood by the people around me, specifically my family. I think they wished I had more like beetleitis or, you know, rock and rollitis, not shotuns, because that's what came out of my mouth. Uh, and I think it was lost to my Cuban immigrant parents. <clears throat> But now I just surrender. So I, uh, I lean into the flare up. So when the flare up happens, you know, then I just let it out. I let it rip. And uh, I just let people know in advance that it's coming, it's happening. And then I lean into it and then we move on. <laughs> so the crazy thing is I know a lot of like first lines to show tunes uh, and that's it. I, there's a, there, you know, I, I'm lost past <laughs> kind of like the first line, the first cue in, and then, then the rest of it is kind of a bit of a blur. Uh, but, you know, in the musical theater, there's always like the cue line. So what happens is inevitably I'm having a conversation with someone and they say something and it feels like the great lead into a song, <laughs> you know? So it's like, it's like a great little volley. 
So that, that's what I can't contain. I can't contain, and that's the cue, and now cue song, uh, that piece. My, my brain does not have that center. So it's it's so funny to me how like some people have like the the musical mindset where and of course we're we're being playful about like show tonight is being an affliction although you do mention um, without much of a, a hint of humor right Eduardo about um, how, like you know your yeah. your your selfhood your love of of music and show tunes coming out in a culture that maybe didn't instinctively understand it or even support it or a culture around you that was intimidated or uncomfortable by it, which are very serious topics and stuff that we'll, we'll get into perhaps in the course of our conversation today about your upbringing and yeah. um, your experience in music and acting as well as talking about story. But um, it's, it's always remarkable to me how the, the, the instincts that we, that we carry kind of become, uh, we experience them almost as if chapters throughout the book of our life, right? Where there's these different instances yeah. of, and, and then they become a, a part of, you know, everyday conversations that you have with people when, when the show tune is summoned from deep within you. You know, I, I have an identical twin brother who's straight. And when we used to play with our GI Joes, my brother played war and I played war, the musical, my little GI Joes sang and they danced and they had monologues. And what's interesting <clears throat> is that I, I, I do have an ability to laugh at stuff that is painful, right? And I think that there is pain that's been painful for me. I'm not laughing at other people's pain, but I'm laughing at my own, which is maybe why there's a little bit of permission, uh, you know, and... Um, and it's interesting because we're, you know, I don't know if we can talk about time, but we are in June. <laughs> June, June is busting out all over, all over the heather and the mill. A little show tune from Carousel. And the, the thing that's interesting, so June is Pride Month in the United States. And, you know, I've done a lot of reflection around pride and why is pride important. And I think that the reason why pride is important is because it's sourced from deep shame. It is the antidote and it is the medicine to having grown up in a belief that there was something fundamentally wrong and shameful about my very experience, right? So what's interesting about show tunitis and what's interesting about the bursting out into the show tune and gifting myself and granting myself permission to lean into that is that it is an explosion of joy, right? And that joy is an antidote to the shame. And what's interesting is that I find that when I lean into it and share of that uh, in my own storytelling, in my own uh, speaking, I think that it is, it, it, it because I'm also singing and it's also music, it kind of cuts through the noise of the brain and it goes straight to the heart. And I think it creates an opening that immediately creates a bond and a connection with an audience. Uh, and I tell the show tonight's joke everywhere in the world. Like the show tonight's is not spared an audience. Like everybody gets it. And I think for someone in an audience to be witness to that, it is completely disarming. It is joyful. And I'm laughing with myself and with all of us together, you know, 
as I re- reveal a truth about myself, which is also me creating a space of safety with my audience so that they know, yes, I do have the show to an affliction and I'm a raging homosexual. So that's also a piece <laughs> of the puzzle. Not that, and you can have show tonitis and be heterosexual. You can be show tonitis and be non-binary, non-conforming. You can have show tonitis and be a cisgender heterosexual. But like it is, not, it is inclusive of all expression. Uh, but, uh, that is, uh, it, it just creates that space of seeing and, and liberation and, and play. I, I think I've never really considered joy to be the antidote or the, the, the quote unquote, like light, the promise side to the shadow of that is shame, right? If we talk about two sides to the same coin. Um, and you know, what, what came to mind for me, I was thinking of Matt Maslow's hierarchy of needs and that framework in which, uh, and also, and also, um, you know, uh, the, the, uh, Hindu South Asian, uh, chakra system, which would kind of equate, um, or put on the same level, shame as a, as an inner, an internal source, an internal wounding, that represents not having done wrong, like guilt, but being wrong. Like your existence is somehow flawed or wrong. And the from what I what I recall from psychology and even from this the spiritual text that I've read about the chakral system, it's like selfhood, self-knowledge, self-confidence, and sometimes even self-love, but it's like self-dash that are that are typically associated with like, here's the healing. For shame, it's like to know yourself really well, and and I think we can attach joy to that. But I never really personally considered like leading with joy as the correction to unf- like you know undeserving shame about who you are as a person. And it feels more powerful than to me as I'm hearing you express it. It feels more powerful in like more corrective and more progressive, like more for it moves more forward or together than just, you know, saying like, know yourself and uh, know yourself if, if you've been dealt a shame hand, if that makes sense. And you know, what's interesting is um, I have found uh, that and the, the way I, you know, I, I, you know, and, and thank you for the permission, you know, and the space to be speaking, you know, as we are in Pride Month, you know, and me speaking about my own relationship with shame and my own internalized homophobia in relationship to my homosexuality um, <clears throat> and my gayness, uh, that I feel like I was so hyper-corrected in every natural expression the quality of my voice, the pitch of my voice, the gestures that I used, the things that I liked, the things that excited me. Like I felt like I had to perform who I think other people wanted me to be. And I think that that's, I'm not, I I think, I don't think that that's the only experience that that is only true for queer people. I believe that most of us live in some trap of I was taught or I was led to believe that by performing someone other than who I am, I could be successful or I could achieve or I could be better uh, or I wouldn't, I didn't have to tell the truth. Like I, nobody really wanted to know the truth. Everybody wanted me to sound like or look like or be someone other than who I am. 
I feel that that's where we get this this fear and shame around public speaking, which is something that I'm in the in the work of, right? Uh, and that the the opportunity, because it is work, because the I, I, the fear and the shame is always present. It's not like it's gone. You know, there is a there's a traumatized second grader inside of me that, that is that is trying to not relive that trauma ever again. That 45 year old Eduardo has to be like, you know what? You're fine. You're okay. Uh, I am going to bring my light anyway. And what's so interesting is that, again, I have been in places in the world where, where I have had to question, like, is my light too bright here? Do I lean into the full expression of who I am or do I have to edit or code switch and stuff like that? And, and there are places in the world where it is dangerous to be a gay man. You know, that is very clear. It is not. And that, that happens in the United States. And that also happens in other places in the world. We're not immune to that in the United States, although sometimes we think that we are. Uh, and I, I feel very blessed and very lucky that, that in the leaning into it, uh, it always pays off. And I think what people connect to is that universal desire for freedom, right? That universal desire of liberation, that universal desire of being expressed that, that I think many people suffer with the, can I, do I, should I, will I, that, that I think that my, and show tinnitus is a sliver of it, uh, gives people permission to harness and share their joy. And I think that that is, uh, that, that, you know, to, and to bring it back to story and storytelling, I think that that's ultimately we want, not that everything we have to tell is joyful, but there is something powerful about speaking the truth. And I think that that's, that's the medicine that I'm after. And that's the medicine that I've just because I've been in the lifelong search for the expression of my own that I now get to be a conduit for other people harnessing that for themselves so that they understand the truth that is of greatest service for them to share right now. It's really remarkable to hear you describe the experience of feeling obligated from a young age, based on the feedback you were receiving from people around you, that you ha- you were kind of instinctively, almost like in an adaptive way, right? Like a survival mechanism and, and just being a social creature, kind of like trying to find your way in the world through the people around you as, as we all do in our own ways. But you mentioned the self-editing, the code switching, the performative nature of trying to fit in or maybe minimize your, your nature, not only your, your sexuality, uh, as you mentioned as a gay man, but like your, your, your nature as like being outspoken and being, wanting to be joyful and, and playful and, um, First, just how how much it hurts me, you know, as an as an empath, um, to imagine that that young version of you, that second grade second grader in you that, that persists to this day, but also imagining that second grader um, navigating that world and figuring out how to exist in a way that is both ensures your survival and your safety, which 
everybody deserves fundamentally at the, just at the, at the essence of their existing, the very least is that fundamental right to feel safe at all times. And then not only the, the physical safety that one deserves, especially if in, as we are in pride month talking about, um, the LGBTQIA plus experience, but also there's that secondary emotional, mental, psycho-spiritual aspect of survival, which is not only to, to be physically safe and, and allowed to live, but then to express the full truth of who somebody knows themselves to be in the world. And that, that's in, in talking about public speaking, which you, which you do as a coach. I'm wondering how much, Eduardo, as we start to maybe talk a little bit about the, 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 the art and the nature of storytelling and, and putting stories forth in the world and, and living your story out loud, when you're working with your clients, I'm wondering about how much, not to maybe like quantify or try to quantify it, um, but I'm wondering about how much of what brings somebody into the room with you to learn how to speak more fearlessly is driven by that younger version of themselves. And maybe, maybe the wound, maybe the wound or the shame um, that they are, they are driven to learn to master the pain um, and express it in the world versus how I think I imagine a, a lot of our listeners may say like, well, public speaking is what you do when you're, when you're a motivational speaker, when you just wrote a book and you want to sell the book, you know, the more like commercial aspects of like speaking and being on TEDx that we equate with like career success. I'm curious about how you've seen people come into the room and I, is it I always love the quite slight personal? shade. I love the slight shade of the, <laughs> of the, the career success because, you know, it's interesting. <clears throat> There's several things that I want to say about that. The first, I believe that there is speaking from ego. So it is what I call speaker-focused speaking, which I'm not really interested in. And then there's audience-focused speaking, which is the speaker is a channel for some type of message or truth to be shared in the moment. That is of service to the people who are listening. That to me feels uh, in greater alignment because I, I have very little patience or tolerance uh, for people just taking up space to take up space, you know, because it's all about them. It is feeding their ego. It's feeling their, their need to be seen, their need to be validated. Uh, that is less interesting to me. <clears throat> uh, there's an Aboriginal saying, which we center in our work, which is the story is hunting the storyteller. I think you're going to love, I think you love that one, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Think, uh, sometimes when I share that there's like an alchemical shift and people are like, oh, oh oops, oops. And what I think is really interesting about that is that I don't believe that there's anything new. Right, as far as story is concerned, I feel like the themes of human experience, uh, jealousy, shame, love, heartbreak, victory, defeat, 
these these are the lessons that we continue to learn as human beings. I think our stories are repeating lessons. They are parables that are repeating things for us to learn, to make sense of the time that we have from when we are born till we die. The, the story is a tool. And however, the specificity of your DNA, your fingerprint, your lived experience is another prism to highlight a truth that bears being repeated. So I think that that's that that's the joy. That's the interesting piece of it. That that yes, only you will live your life. Only you will live your experience, and only you will experience these themes and through the intricacy and specificity of like your reactions and the decisions that you've made or things that have happened to you and how you reacted to those events that have happened, that story now sounds, looks, feels different. And yet the lesson is the same. It is a lesson that we continue to learn I don't think that we as human beings are good at learning lessons, which is why we need new and more stories, right? Uh, I think that that's just part of the human experience. And uh, and what's interesting is that I think that people come thinking oftentimes that there is a story that they want to tell. And then inevitably, the story that needs to be revealed emerges. And sometimes it's not the story that you think. And that's why in, in part of our work, in part of our work at Fearless Communicators, it, the term that we use is being story doulas. And, uh, and I think what we do is we craft and create a container that allows the story that wants to be revealed to emerge. And sometimes that means that other stories have to kind of clear. So sometimes in our work where we have our clearing stories, someone gets a story out and they're like, wait, I've been holding on to that story for 10, 15, 20 years. And now that I've actually said it, now that I've actually crafted it, now that I've actually made sense of it, now I'm actually present to the new thing that wants to emerge because we're still sometimes stuck or holding on to stories of the past. So much so that we can actually be present to the stories that are actually emerging in the moment. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so I think that what is, uh, th that the impetus, ultimately what I'm always interested in is the truth. And, and I think that to go back to the story that we were telling, the reason why I'm so interested in the truth is because from probably the age of five or six or seven, who I was was a liar. Right? So from the moment that I woke up to the moment that I went to sleep, I had to perform or convince everyone around me that I wasn't who I was that the desires that I had, the things that I liked, the people that I had crushes on, like none of that, the truth was something that the people nearest to me couldn't be with. So I had to lie. And I think part of my journey coming out at 18, being an actor where you're paid to lie, you're paid to convince other people that you are a character and all that other stuff. 
finally, one of the things that exhausted me about being an actor was like, I was sick and tired of performing somebody else. I was like, I'm done with that. I've spent my entire life donning and putting on a drag or a costume or a character of who I thought everyone else needed me to be. And pardon the expression, I'm fucking over it. And I'm ready to embody and be the truth as I know it in this moment for myself in my lived experience and, and speak about, tell my own story, share my own experience and be a monologist that I am the author of, <laughs> right? It is, I'm not, no one else is writing it for me. I am speaking it. And, uh, and I think that that impetus, that hunger is something that people find a home in, in fearless communicators, which is there is something that I want to say. I'm either terrified of it or I don't quite know how to say it because there's a lot that's going on in my mind. And I think oftentimes fear and shame and doubt is a part of that, although it may not be very frontal lobby for people. I think that there is some type of root there. Uh, and then the, the power in the, the liberation of that truth as a tool of service. So not just, it's not about me, it's through me that I think becomes the differentiator. And I think that that's what makes it uh, an act of generosity as opposed to an act of selfishness. That was my 2022 conversation with Eduardo Placer. To listen to the full interview, you can click through the show notes to find an included link directly to the episode, or you can visit thenewstory.is slash podcast. Next, let's listen back to my 2022 conversation with best-selling author Wade Rouse. Wade joined me to discuss his memoir called Magic Season, which tells the true story of how the sport of baseball gave Wade and his emotionally abusive father a shared language with which they could communicate, and how that language provided them the opportunity to bond and heal later in life. In this excerpt, Wade tells us what it was like for him to grow up as a kid in the Ozarks region of Missouri in the 1970s, how he struggled to be accepted by both his abusive father and other men and boys in a hyper-masculinized culture, and how the women in his life in particular, including his mother and grandmothers, empowered Wade to know himself through writing, the arts, and creativity. Here's Wade. So I grew up in southwest Missouri, literally within spitting distance of Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Kansas, kind of in what we call the Four Corners region right down there. And I was born um, in 1965, so really grew up in the 1970s in rural America. You know, I always say everybody's seen the TV show Ozark. They candy coated that, what, <laughs> what I grew up with. You know, it was much rougher and much tougher and much more isolated, especially for a gay kid in the 1970s. You know, there were no role models. There were no words to say what I was feeling um, or how I was. And so it was really, really difficult. You know, Ozark's kids, you know, especially boys are, you know, I don't mean to stereotype them all, but they're, 
rough and tumble. You know, they hunt and they fish and they play sports and they go mudding in their trucks and wear, you know, dingo boots and wranglers and all the things that I didn't do. You know, I like to read and bake with my grandmothers in their kitchen and wear little ascots that they made me and (laughs) write and journal. And so that's just, you know, that's putting a target right on the middle of my head. So it was not easy to grow up there in the 1970s because there was no way to express what I was feeling or to connect with anyone in some way about what I was going through. So it was um, deeply isolating. The wonderful thing was that I, I had a crazy mother that I write a lot about who was way ahead of her time, you know, studied world religion at a time in an area of full on Southern Baptists, you know, where you couldn't, couldn't drink or dance. Um, and my mother taught me that it was, she was a nurse and a hospice nurse. She taught me it was okay to be different and to believe in my uniqueness. And that really, along with my grandmother's love, kind of set me apart and helped helped keep me going. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And you, and you do mention in the early chapters of Magic Season, Wade, you describe how like feeling different, feeling like an outsider in your community. Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, how a lot of kids in the Ozarks grow up. You said that in your book that uh, learning how to hunt made you physically sick. Um, and while you were forced into playing sports because, quote unquote, that's what, you know, young men did um, growing up in those days, um, you would prefer to be alone. You prefer to learn how to cook with your mother or your grandmother, like you said, or playing outside in the woods, exploring. I think you mentioned talking, talk, preferring to talk to rabbits rather than hunt them and, and try to shoot them. Um, <laughs> and so in this, in this context, in this environment, we're introduced to um, <clears throat> the figure of your father, who uh, is many things. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about him in the context of this book and how we meet him. But of all the things that he is, you, you return to describing him as, as the chemical engineer that he was. And you described yourself as an equation that he could never seem to figure out. I'm wondering how early in your life you made that connection or felt like your dad was trying to like fix you or solve you. Was there a point that you realized it or was it like from, from so young that you couldn't even distinguish like when it began, if you will? Yeah. You know, I think it was, you just, you stick out like a sore thumb, you know, when the Ozarks in the seventies, if you're not following, you know, the rest of the sheep, it was, it was very difficult. And I never did that. I didn't do that from the beginning. I think my father obviously knew and I knew very early, but there was no way to put that into context, if that makes sense. You know, we just, there was no language for any of that. You know, I write in the in Magic Season about a real seminal moment where my dad tried to teach me to play baseball and I, you know, just didn't come naturally. You know, the glove didn't work on my hand and the ball would just say, you know, there are pictures of me, Polaroids, and the ball's just sailing over my head time and time again. And I'm like, when are you folks going to stop this? And he said to me, you'll never learn how to play baseball and you'll never be a real man. And that's what it was in the Ozarks, this, 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 this concept and idea of what a real man was and what he did. And I confounded my father because I fit into none of those things. You know, I didn't, even in school studying things, I wanted to write. I wanted to major in communications or journalism, all the things that my, you know, as my dad once said, you know, you're never going to make a damn cent communicating. What does that, what does that mean? He just couldn't quantify um, me or my life 
and it was it was hard, you know, because all any kid really wants is his father's or parents' acceptance and unconditional love. That's all you want growing up. And when you know it's when you know it's not there, when you can feel it in your soul, um, no matter how early it's it lingers and it sticks with you, it makes you feel less than um, and unwanting and undeserving of love. And you know that set a pattern in my life that was hard and very destructive for a long, long time. Yeah. And I'm wondering about the role of writing both, again, we, we talked fiction and nonfiction, but specifically as a nonfiction writer, as a, as a memoir writer, um, you know, the genre of, of memoir is so fascinating to me because I, I love nonfiction work and I consider myself a nonfiction writer. I've never written memoir, but memoir specifically is really interesting because I feel like it's a vessel for taking a specific lens on a trajectory of the past, like through your memories and almost like relitigating the experience, not for the sake of purely reliving it, but meaning making along the way. That's why I think it's such an interesting and fascinating genre of storytelling. And, and I'm curious about if writing throughout your, your younger years especially Wade, um, provided you this outlet of, of self-knowledge of personal learning and growth, full disclosure. This is like, this kind of like my religion is like, is like personal writing to understand the self. So I don't want to force you into that box if, if, um, that wasn't the case for you, but I am curious about, because it seems like you had such a rich inner world as a young person. Um, if writing specifically or just other other practices or experiences of your inner world, like you mentioned, um, learning how to bake and cook, um, gave you an outlet through which you could start to know what felt like your true self, maybe if you didn't even have the language for that, despite getting these really toxic reinforcing ideas and stories placed upon you that like you weren't a quote unquote real man or you never would be or you were, you were different and felt like an outsider. How did you access your inner world um, and, and did writing have a role with that? Or is it something that just kind of developed later in life? God, that's a great question. And stop me because I could go in a million different directions and talk forever on that point because um, it's true. You know, I always describe memoir writing as you're going on a long hike. Like I winter in Palm Springs and hike a lot and you're going on a long hike and you put on a backpack, but what can you pack in that backpack that's essential to get you to the top of the peak? You know, there's only certain elements that you can put in that that are essential for the trip. And that's the same for hiking, and it is the same, exactly the same for um, a rider. You know, you can only put in exactly what you need. So that's always how I kind of look at, at, at memoir writing. But growing up, you know, I think I started when at kind of the at the feet of my mother and my grandmothers you know it was part and parcel growing up with them um in their sewing rooms and in their kitchens where i saw that they were creating you know i watched my grandmothers um bake uh, they had sewing rooms with these big singing singer sewing machines and you know, when they would sew, for instance, they would take disparate scraps and 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 weave them into something beautiful, which is what I still do today. But I saw through them at an early age that they were actually telling stories of their lives and their families through through these acts. You know, it could be 
pulling an old recipe card um, from a recipe box and baking a, a treasured family dessert, or it could be quilting, whatever it was, they were pulling something together that kind of told a story of, of family that could and might last forever. And that's what writing was for me. You know, I, I remember a big moment in, in middle school where I tried out for a talent contest and I sang Delta Dawn, if you remember that, the Tanya Tucker version, and held a faded rose and I got heckled off stage. And my mom and grandma were waiting backstage and they gave me a copy of Irma Bombeck's book At Wit's End and they gave me a, a writing journal and said, perhaps this is how I would make sense in my life. And that's how I started writing was I would journal and write every single day just about life or what was happening or, uh, you know, an embarrassment or something beautiful that I saw in the woods, it, whatever it was. And that started to make me believe if this makes sense in myself, because, you know, we all are gifted this incredible voice, you know, as artists and writers, especially. And it's all we've got. This is all we've got from here to here um, is all we have. And yet we spend our, especially when we don't fit in, we spend our lives trying to lose that because we just want to be like everyone else. We just want to be accepted and fit in. So we spend our childhoods and our lives trying to bury that voice because we don't want to be different. It's weird to be different. And yet that was my saving grace, um, was knowing that getting this down, there was something real and authentic about what I was feeling. And it moved me at an early age, um, it made me laugh or it made me cry. And that kind of always kept me centered. It's wonderful that your, your mother, your grandmother, uh, and I'm not sure if it's both your grandmothers who you had relationships with. Was it just, was it just the, the one way or was it, did you have both grandmothers in your life? Actually both. My, I was very close to my mother's mom because she just lived over a, you know, a hill from me, but I was very close to my dad's uh, mother as well. She was a seamstress too. And um, they had a cabin that I spent, I write a lot about that I, I grew up spending childhood summers in. So very close to both. Yeah. Well, it's just wonderful that you, you also had the support from others in your life who, who were able to encourage you and give you these outlets of, of self-knowledge. Um, but taking it back to, to the memoir at hand of Magic Season, and I'm sure we'll, we'll dip back into talking about your mother and grandmothers as well. I'm wondering if we could uh, establish for the listeners who haven't read your book yet, a little bit about your father by perhaps telling us a story. The, the one I'm thinking of specifically that stands out from reading your book is um, when you were a young kid and you found yourself uh, caught in a strong current in the river, uh, you called out for your father who was on the shore and, and what his reactions were. Maybe this, this might be just an, an example that kind of establishes for our listener what, what the relationship was like, at least when it started when you were young. Yeah, and his, I think his, you know, his belief of what a real man was. You know, my mom had, you know, for, that wasn't really a country club we joined in the Ozarks, but it was, you know, it had a pool and a place where you could get lunch in a nine-hole golf course. And uh, I was in swim lessons, and my father came and literally pulled me out of the pool, um, you know, saying the boy don't need fancy, and took me down to our cabin and with a six-pack of beer and literally threw me into the swift-moving creek. It was called Sugar Creek. 
um, which ran high and, you know, and after heavy rains and didn't make a move to, to save me, to teach me anything, to help me at all. He just pretty much laughed as I was swept downstream. And, um, you know, I, I fought like hell to, to try and swim back to shore and save myself. And when it was over, my dad, you know, just essentially said, stop all your caterwauling, son, you know, here's, here's a drink of my beer. You did it. And, uh, Kind of juxtapose that with you know being an adult and being in northern Michigan in a resort town where the where the salmon run every every fall up upstream, and comparing myself to to that you know I never really like them I never really learned how to swim I just learned how to survive, you know I just was paddling as hard as I could my entire life against every force of nature where I grew up you know so environmental to try and live. Um, I just never really learned how, how, how to swim well in life. And I think that's like so many of us, you know, we are, so I love to write both genres. You know, I always like to write what I call ghosts on our shoulders. You know, all of those things that in the past that make us who we are today, it's, it's the past that's done it. It's all the things that have happened to us and how we have and haven't coped with that, that have made us who we are and why we are the way we are. Um, and in writing nonfiction, that's how I tried to look at my father, too. You know, it's a memoir where when I write nonfiction, I try not to blame. I try to understand because of those ghosts. And why did my dad become the man he was? Um, what was it in his past? Um, you know, same for me. Did I become the man I was because? cause of my dad or in spite of him, or was it both? Um, so that's, you know, my dad was an, the most emotional, non-emotional man you've ever known. I mean, if you know a true country man, a true Ozarks man, where words do not come easily, um, where you can't express anything, where any emotion you deal with by clicking off a Cardinals game that's not going the right way, or you drink another beer to kind of bury all that you're feeling that would that was my dad and that's a that it's a bad ending you know it's going it's going to come out and explode um in the worst possible ways at moments yeah and so in uh despite the differences in your personalities and, and how your father seems to have not only misunderstood you from a young age but also kind of thrust his ideas of like what manhood is and how someone should be uh, in the environment in which you were growing up, you found, and as you detail in Magic Season, um, that despite your strained relationship, you know, for, for many years, that there was still this uh, mutual respect and appreciation of baseball, which gave you something to bond through. Uh, but it also seems like baseball gave you a shared sense of language for even loosely or indirectly uh, understanding one another. Um, when did it become clear to you that baseball was something that you and your father both held as meaningful, despite the issues that you experienced in your relationship throughout your life? You know, at a very early age, you know, I, when my dad couldn't teach me how to play baseball, um, I would walk into the house and kind of stand in the shadows and watch him watching or listening to a, to a St. Louis Cardinals game. And when he would do that, he'd always pat the end of the couch for the dog to join him. And I kind of just 
watched him watching just because I wanted his approval or his attention. I wanted him to invite me in in some way. And over over the course of just doing that, I truly became interested in the game of baseball. You know, it, it's a thinking man's game. It hasn't changed that much over the co- course of time. Um, and my dad, early on, as I write in the book, said to me, you know, it's the games like life. It's the tiny decisions ending to ending that make the final score in the end. And that was how I always looked at our relationship. Um, and it really did. It be, You know, I call it our love language. You know, we didn't talk for a long time much about our lives, but we could talk about baseball. We could talk about famous Cardinals players like Keith Hernandez and Lou Brock and, uh, you know, Bob Forsh and Al Rabowski. And there is something, as I've learned, getting so many emails already, especially from straight men and readers across the country, is that sports are an incredible uniter. You know, men often cannot and do not express emotion, but if they're watching a game together or attending a game or they're playing golf, whatever it may be, there's a shared experience there despite not really talking about anything deep within. They're still together and something is happening between them. And that's what happened to my dad. And I think over the course of time, finally, the baseball transferred to life and we were able to start talking and sharing stories. And that's where I began to understand how he became Ted Rouse and um, why it was so hard for him. And, you know, baseball saved our, in in many ways, saved our relationship. You know, I write about um, when I came out to my father, he did not talk to me for two years. He wrote me a horrific letter saying, you know, I was going to burn in hell and I would lose my job and all my friends. And you know, I'd been coerced <laughs> in a back alley by by an older man, you know, even though my husband's younger than I am. Um, and he just, he did, it, it was all environmental. He had no idea what he was talking about. And at that time I had to walk away because the hurt was so much. Um, and he, you know, he wounded me so deeply. But when Mark McGuire for the Cardinals hit his 70th home run and broke the baseball record, my dad called me on the phone And he said, you know, his apology was he didn't do it alone. It takes a team. And to me, that was my father's first apology and first step back um, to loving me and understanding who I was and also getting to know my husband, Gary, um, and loving him at the end deeply. Um, But it took it took baseball as a way to to make that happen. And that took a long time. But I'm thankful it did. That was my 2022 conversation with best-selling author Wade Rouse. To listen to the full interview, visit the show notes of this episode by clicking through on your podcast player of choice or visiting thenewstory.is slash podcast. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode. My name is Dave Rosillo. Thank you for listening to this best-of episode of The New Story Is. Happy Pride to you and yours, and story on.